right, welcome everybody. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us for this third session of the Housing and Learning Community. Um, this, series, this series is sponsored by the Mid-America Addiction Technology and Transfer Center um, in collaboration with the Mid-America Mental Health Technology and Transfer Center, the MHTTC, and the Mid-America Prevention and Technology Transfer Center, the PTTC. My name is James Glenn. I'm the co-director of the Mid-America ATTC. Uh, as well as the Associate Administrator and Business Strategist for Truman uh, Medical Center's Behavioral Health, which is a safety net and essential hospital in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. In addition to these roles, I've, uh, I've been a supportive housing consultant for about the last 17 years, specializing in program design and implementation, um, typically for chronically homeless individuals uh, with severe and persistent mental illness and substance use disorder. Safe, stable, and affordable housing is a vital part of any recovery process, yet most communities lack this adequate housing options to support clients on the recovery journey. So this six-session learning community will provide the foundational knowledge needed to provide agencies um, or help agencies better understand housing as an intervention um, and should help hone in kind of what, you, what role you or your organization could play in advancing affordable housing options in your community. Um, this is kind of our disclosure. Instead of the traditional PowerPoint webinar uh, format, these sessions are actually designed to be um, structured discussions. I will facilitate each, each session and we'll be asking the guest panelists questions designed to allow them to share their experiences in the field. Um, this is not scripted, so it's meant to be authentic and give people exposure to seasoned professionals. So I really don't know what they're going to say, which always makes it an interesting journey. Um, these are recorded Zoom sessions. They'll be converted into podcast formats. So please be mindful of the mute button and background noise um, while you're listening. And don't be camera shy. If we get into a discussion, I will ask you, obviously, to, to unmute um, your button. We plan to allow time for audience members to ask questions and share their own experience related to housing. Please follow the instructions on the screen relating to using the chat box. And Brie and Alex will make sure we get to each question uh, as we go. The topic for today's session is Special Populations Part 2. We'll be focusing on veterans, persons experiencing homelessness, and older adults, and persons with severe and persistent mental illness. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right in and have our guest panelists introduce themselves as we get started. And as you guys introduce yourselves, please uh, tell us a little bit about your maybe not just current role, but also your former roles and experience that we have. And since you're in the hot seat right next to me, Darla, I'm going to get started with you. Great. Um, my name is Darla Bellflower, and I work at Truman Behavioral Health as the Associate Director of Supportive Housing. I have been in the field of addiction and mental health services since a really long time, <laughs> <laughs> since the early 90s, and uh, specifically in supportive housing for about the last 12 to 13 years. Um, I currently um, work uh, with several different housing programs within Truman, as well as the larger Kansas City community as a whole. Perfect. Cindy? I'm Cindy Taylor. <clears throat> I am uh, I'm a clinical social worker and I have 30 years working in the field. I've had the privilege of working with households experiencing housing crises and homelessness. I worked for 18 years in healthcare for the homeless program at a community health center right here in Kansas City, uh, School of Health Services, if anybody knows them. 
And then I also had an opportunity for seven years to work with James and Darla and Wyanot uh, Mental Health in Kansas City, Kansas as the administrator of several HUD-funded continuum of care programs. And I was the administrator of um, scattered site and congregate master leased housing. And currently, I am working at a 117-unit apartment complex named St. Michael's Veterans <laughs> Center, and we were uh, we were built with the state low-income housing tax credit. It is a wonderful partnership with our local Kansas City, Missouri Housing Authority. Every unit on property has a housing choice voucher, which enables the veteran to pay rent commensurate to what their income is. And it's a congregate site housing program. I'm the social worker on staff that uh, administers various programs. Great, thank you for being here, Bill. Yeah, this is uh, Bill Berenson. I am the uh, project coordinator of Mid-American Mental Health Technology Transfer Center. Uh, we work to uh, increase utilization of evidence-based mental health practices in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and Iowa. And uh, we had some initiatives around permanent supportive housing. Uh, just like the other two panelists, I got my start uh, in permanent uh, in housing in, uh, in the early 90s. I was the director of a large 250-bed overnight shelter in Chicago for five years. and, and uh, uh, was there when we uh, uh, implemented the 10-year plan to end homelessness and uh, introduce housing first in the, in the continuum of care in Chicago and, and saw firsthand how uh, services changed for the, uh, and housing changed for the people that we worked with at the shelter. Uh, we, uh, we saw people that were street-based and, uh, and uh, for the first time really had housing options available that could move people uh, into housing and not through all these transitions that they otherwise would have to face. Since then I've been a supervisor in a, uh, in a permanent supportive housing program that served homeless people with the core crime, mental health and substance use disorders. And uh, the last many years I've worked as, a, as an educator. Well, I really appreciate having you back again, Bill. Um, your experience was very helpful on the first podcast. So as I said in the introduction, this is the third uh, in a six part series. Um, just for reference, the first one was on Housing 101 and was a basic overview, and the second one was on Special Populations Part 1, where we looked at uh, women with children, families, and transition age youth. I think we're going to put up on the screen here just a recap of some of the takeaways so that you can get familiar with it as you um, prepare to put questions in the chat box as we go. So I'd encourage, if you haven't listened to those, I've been listening to those. Um, it was really, I thought, some good discussion around housing as an intervention and really getting some basic uh, concepts introduced. So we're going to dive right in because we're limited on time to questions um, here. And Darla, I'm going to go ahead and start with you. I think what we're going to first do is kind of a round robin to look at uh, each one of the populations we're outlining and talk a little bit about experience and kind of need to knows uh, for people, housing strategies, and, and what would you want people to know. Let's start with uh, persons experiencing homelessness. Uh, both chronically and intermittently, any type of wisdom that you would want to share or anything that you think they need to know about that population? I think that the first thing to say is obviously that they are people first and with any population, I think that it's really important for us to remember um, when taking housing choices into consideration to practice the nothing about me without me philosophy and that we may think that you know this client needs this type of housing or you know this kind of services or structure but um, building that kind of plan for them without including them is not helpful at all um, and it kind of sets them up for potential premature housing failure so i think that is 
probably the most important factor to consider and to meet them where they're at um, with what they want to do with their housing, especially if it's their first housing placement yeah. exiting homelessness. Yeah, that's really good. Cindy, what do you want to add to that? Um, we neglected to introduce our intern at St. Michael's Veterans Center, which is Nate Eichmeyer. He is a veteran himself, and so he's going to speak a little bit about what might be unique about housing veterans, and then I'm going to dovetail on the end of whatever you say. Okay, yeah. Hey, everybody. Um, I think Cindy and I talked about this a lot um, before getting here, but I think there's an identity piece with the veterans, um, you know, something that everybody can relate to, but along with that piece, I think that, uh, you know, People in the service go through adversity together, and I think it brings people really close together, um, whether that be deployment, whether that be uh, just the, the stress of the job. Um, so I think as people go through that, you, you come together and you build a relationship, and I don't think that relationship ends um, you know, after people are discharged. So that's something that most people carry with them the rest of their lives. And I do think it's unique to the population. Yeah, it's, it's a really good perspective. I appreciate you being here, by the way. Yeah. So even though Cindy told you you had to come with her, I think I'm really glad you came. Um, Bill, do you want to take a stab at people experiencing homelessness um, and or veterans? Yeah, I think uh, just to state the obvious that people want housing. Homeless persons with, with mental illnesses and, and other issues, they want housing just like everybody else. And uh, uh, what we have to be aware of is that um, that one size doesn't fit all, that people might need different things, they might want different things, and, and, and we should be considerate of that when we uh, develop our housing options for these people. That some people want to live in their own apartment, other people, maybe few, want to live in a group home, uh, along other people to get their needs met, and we need to be considerate of that uh, as we develop the housing models. But we also need to consider the level of support and the need for support and that people want. That some people might need the, and want the level of an assertive community treatment team. Some people might need a community support worker or a case manager. And some people don't want any uh, level of support and might not need that. Um, the other thing I want to think, I think of is that uh, people have the same goals as anybody else. They want to be in, in, uh, feel included in society and they want to be independent. And uh, we as a as uh, support staff can help people in that transition to make that cognitive shift from, from having to think about getting their daily needs met. Where's the food gonna come from? Where's my gonna sleep tonight? How to uh, protect my belongings? To thinking about lifestyle changes and, and to reduce the boredom that goes along with, uh, with moving into an apartment. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I actually, when you're talking, I just I, I just returned from a trip to Colorado Springs here last week. And one of the things that was echoed what you said was when I was touring, uh, which was a major mental health center and a healthcare center, talking about housing and jobs, they made it very clear that that's what people were requesting when they came in the door was housing and jobs. And we keep trying to give them everything else as a social service sector, which I thought was interesting. Not that they don't need therapy, not that they don't need these additional services, what they found was when you start by giving them housing and jobs, a lot of the healthcare conditions, mental and physical, start to decline afterwards. And I think that's a big takeaway for us in terms of the order of things that we offer. Um, and you were touching on that at the beginning, Bill, so I, I appreciate that. I think that's a big takeaway. So, so let's keep moving on with some of the questions and add to kind of that layer. Obviously, some people um, experiencing homelessness and some veterans also have mental health challenges, not all of them. Maybe talk about the unique parts of um, serving people with mental health issues. And Dolly, you want to take a stab at first 
kind of highlighting some of those? Sure. I think um, first I'd like to dovetail on something that um, Bill had said, which is, you know, fighting boredom. One of the things that is really important and that we always do is make sure that when a person moves into their home, they have absolutely everything that they need for that first night. People who have a belief, oh, it's better to move them into an empty apartment, that's actually not true. Um, when that happens, all kinds of shenanigans, uh, that's inviting um, all kinds of behaviors that um, maybe are really not going to be very helpful for them to be successful. So to make sure that they, even if it's one pot, one pan, one dish, one, you know, to be able to prepare a meal, have a bed to sleep in, even if it's an inflatable bed that first night, to be able to take their medicine, to have a radio, a TV, something, you know, um, is really important. And I think that it's even more important for people who are experiencing um, symptoms of a mental health disorder as somebody who is uh, in long-term recovery from addiction and um, has had been a um, has had mental health services myself, the worst thing for me is to sit unattended bored um, for any length of time. I'm definitely a human being. Um, I mean, I'm a human doing. I have to have something to do all the time. And so I think that that is really important things to consider um, is not isolating somebody, you know, being within the homeless community is a community. And so to remove someone from that without providing other things is a disservice. Yeah. Absolutely. That's good. And what about your experience, Cindy, about that? Working with individuals experiencing mental health yeah. challenges? Yeah. What I found to be helpful when I'm meeting a client for the first time and we're discussing housing, exiting homelessness, and going into housing, would be to ask them what, what their sense of their own mental health symptoms are. Uh, to me, diagnosis is not very helpful. I like to know how they understand their symptoms and whether or not those symptoms are causing them distress or causing any problems related to their housing. And then I like to ask them what idea, what, what has worked in the past, what's been a problem in the past, has any of those symptoms ever interfered with housing? Get a sense of that because they might have lost housing for other reasons that might not have had anything to do. You know, their, their mental health symptoms have anything to do with their experience of homelessness. And to just uncouple those um, and to be able to support pe people the way they're wanting to be supported, and then ask them what kind of support they think they need as they move into housing. And um, not that we're not not that I'm going to ignore what symptoms are sharing with me and what services they need to support them, but I'm going to uncouple those two things. Housing is housing. What do you need to be successful in that? How does your mental health symptoms cause you to stress or problems? What do you need to be helpful with that to be successful? That's a great, it's a great word to use. Uncoupling things. What about Bill? You've had a lot of experience in this area. What kind of takeaways would you say after all this time? Well, I think, I think. Uh, Healing is a social enterprise in many ways. It's a, it's a contact with other people that makes us heal. And, uh, and, and so it might be just as important to uh, visit people at the library or go out for a cup of coffee than to meet in the apartment, to help people get connected with yeah, it's good. the community around them. I think is, uh, is probably much more important than the focus on independent living skills or whatever it might be. I would add, my experience has been, I would agree with everything everybody said, my experience has been, um, particularly with individuals experiencing homeless, as well as people with mental health issues, if they've had a lot of trauma particularly, 
Um, they tend to, and I remind people that are providing services to them, is they as a population tend to have heightened senses and can feel your authenticity before you even start to talk. And especially if, from my experience, at least with women being on the streets, um, they've had to heighten their senses to survive. And I think sometimes we get so lost in our checklists and the things that we need to do that if we don't have that, I think Cindy and Darla, you I work with you, you guys are really good at this. And it's a big takeaway for me when I work with people, that trauma sense, <clears throat> excuse me, that trauma sensitivity and the way you approach people and treat them as a human first, I would say is a big takeaway for anybody designing a program. We can treat every, or we can, we can really teach everybody um, these evidence-based practices, but the way that they're delivered is a really big takeaway for me when you're talking about special populations, particularly ones that come away with a lot of trauma. And I think, Bill, you've had a lot of experience with that too. Yeah, I certainly do. I think uh, it, it all starts with that relationship and, and the trust you build with people, right? And, uh, and sometimes we move too fast, not to say that housing is not important, but let's sit down and talk about uh, what it is you want, what you're, what you're trying to get out of, um, you know, having a home, where you want to live, uh, how you want your home to be, what you want to do, what, what you want to, uh, uh, what you want with your life. And, right. Uh, right. Totally agree. So let's, um, so let's continue to look at the last population we had on our list, which is kind of older adults, which I know are people that are uh, really near and dear to your heart. So Darla, I'm going to ask you, you know, specifically and actually with this question, can we talk a little bit about aging in place and what that concept is and kind of the mentality and the mindset that has to go with that? Sure. Um, there are several things to take into consideration um, for housing of older adults and people who experience a severe and persistent mental illness age um, or die on an average of 25 years younger than their peers. So the aging process is much faster. So the definition of older adult is actually 55 or older. So I'm like right there, right? And um, some things to take into consideration as far as the unit are obviously, is it accessible? Um, fall hazards are huge. So, you know, whenever you go into the home, constantly looking for that because sight also is not something that happens you know, below a certain level because of bifocals, just quite frankly. And so um, the, if an older adult falls and breaks their hip, you know, the mortality risk of that is between 14 and 58%. So it's something that can be avoided. Um, the other thing to take into consideration is two of the biggest factors for eviction of older adults is incontinence and hoarding behaviors and so if you can work with somebody on those two things um, somebody who exhibits hoarding behaviors it usually starts you know um, before you're a teenager but it gets worse as a person ages it's something that just is progressive so if you can work with them on those two things the idea of aging in place is hugely important because moving somebody who is over the age of 65 can be a death sentence. People who are moved within 12 months, one third of them die Jeez, because it's so traumatic and it's unfamiliar. And um, so aging in place um, is a great concept idea. And there's a lot of services that a person could qualify for in order to make that happen. 
um, a homemaker coming in. You know, if somebody is connected to a mental health center, there's more and more synergy around uh, mental health and aging than there ever has been before. Um, as everybody knows, the aging population is set to double in just a couple of decades. It's already kind of hitting the first wave of that bubble. So, um, so I think that aging in place, at, if at all possible, is not only more humane, it can actually increase somebody's lifespan. Longevity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I didn't know that. Cindy, do you have any comments to add to that? Uh, I do. Being a veteran's center, we've got quite a few Vietnam veterans, which we know the war was in the 60s and 70s, and those, those veterans are experiencing older adult life now. We even have a Korean War veteran, by the way. Um, so that is something that we're looking at quite a bit, is how to bring the homemakers into the campus to keep the, to keep the, the residents in their current apartment. A concern that I have is that it's not always affordable, not every resident that we have is going to be eligible financially for Medicaid, primarily to pay a source for a homemaker to come in, make a meal, clean the house, it is usually your state Medicaid program. The VA will pay for some of the services, but identifying a payer source so that individuals can each in place, I think, as housing providers is going to be a very big goal for us. It has been a lot of organizations across the country already working on that, but I'm recognizing specifically because of the Vietnam veterans in my community the need to really figure out where are the payer sources and um, to remind ourselves that we have built-in stakeholders. If someone leaves our residence, it goes into a much higher level of care, like a skilled nursing facility. The state is going to be paying for that. Someone else is going to be paying for that at a much higher cost than it would be just to bring a homemaker or an additional service into the residence that's already affordable. And so I think as housing providers, we, we need to be on the forefront of, of this movement, really be identifying the payer sources and going after the stakeholders that stand to lose a lot of money if our residents leave because they're built in stakeholders for us. And hopefully health insurance companies will continue to partner with us as they already do. Yeah, that's a really good point. And before I move to Bill, real quick, I did want to recognize some of the comments in, the, in our chat room and they asked if we could repeat that stat around. That was really powerful stuff that you were talking about. Could you repeat that, Darla, about um, uh, elderly population and moving? that in the 12 months after a move, somebody who is over the age of 65, there is a mortality rate of one third. One third of those folks will pass away. Yeah, now, there's things that obviously take into consideration, you know, were they uh, ill whenever they moved, things like that, but often they are not. Um, I actually, in preparing for this, read a story today about a woman who was healthy, but her son lived out of state, so he moved her against her will to a nursing home and she died within 40 days of a broken heart because yeah. Yeah. she was no longer in her home. There is, there is a lot of, re and I, Bill may know more about this, he's you know set up in an academic institution, but I have been reading, and I know the Surgeon General has done some um, studies on this, but isolation and loneliness is really a national epidemic, and particularly when you talk about this population, it has physical ramifications. So. I don't know, Bill, you want to add to this discussion about older adults? Yeah, you just uh, stole my thunder here, James. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but I think it is important to uh, consider the availability of, of social outlets as we, uh, as we locate housing and develop housing models for, for uh, older adults. And I also think we need to consider the, uh, the mental health team 
uh, and, and the efforts we can make at reaching out to family members, to include friends uh, in, in the discussions about the care of, uh, of, of the individual, if they so choose, obviously. Uh, but there's a lot we can do to, uh, uh, to include family and, and, and uh, facilitate contact between uh, the person with the illness and, and family. Yeah, last week we, we obviously were talking about families and we were talking about really family as defined by the person we're serving to and making sure that we look at that because that social you know network becomes so crucial, not only the older we get, but I argue in all ages, to be honest with you, for different reasons. Um, that was a really powerful stat. And one of the things that made me think about actually when you were talking to you about a payer source is one of the issues I know we have um, largely um, when we house chronically homeless individuals with severe persistent mental illnesses is utility management and thermostats. And one of the things I was thinking about is all the challenges we had. I think one of the two of you was always asking me, talk about their health condition, check their thyroid, you know, usually is that a sign that their medications aren't working? So you want to just maybe talk about a little bit what that can be an indicator of. I think a lot of times we initially assume they're doing something intentional when thermostats are cranked through the roof or and what I learned over time is that that's a red flag that something's not working in their health. That's a thyroid or their medications aren't working. Have you had experiences with that that you want to share? Sure. Um, it could be an indication of anemia. I mean, something as simple as that. It could be an indication of low blood pressure. Um, or, you know, often people who experience symptoms of schizophrenia have no thermometer. And so, you know, it may be actually, you know, 90 degrees in their apartment and they're still putting on clothes because they don't have that regulation. Um, so I think that that's important to always get yeah. checked out physically. Same way with an older adult who maybe suddenly start experiencing um, disorganized thoughts or uh, even delusions, especially in older adult females, the first thing that you should always check for is a UTI because that will cause symptoms that mirror that of schizophrenia. Yeah, um, any other comments on that? It just made me think when we were talking about that, that's been such a huge issue, I think, for preventing people from falling out is, you know, payment of their utilities um, and keeping that in check. Um, and I usually recommend when I'm a consultant, within the first 90 days, if you can get a full health assessment done, and I don't think we always build this in our program design, it's super important to do that so that you can start establishing a baseline when somebody comes in and really look at them more holistically and not just their mental health and their, um, or their substance use and their histories. So any other comments on that? Yeah, I just want to just add to what Darla was saying about uh, uh, health disparity and uh, uh, you mentioned 25 year difference in life expectancy that uh, that most of that variance is really caused by modifiable risk behaviors it is uh, how we eat and, and uh, physical inactivity it is caused maybe by increased rates of smoking alcohol and drug use infectious diseases those kind of things and I think there's a lot we can do to help people uh, consider their health and uh, and uh, maybe as we walk along and, and help people with grocery shopping, uh, talk about physical health, talk about nutrition and how it affects diabetes and, and, and our cholesterol and, and hypertension and uh, uh, these illnesses that uh, it's the greatest cause of this mortality. And uh, 
And also, I think we uh, sometimes do a disfavor by talking too much about it. I think there's a value in doing things. Instead of sitting and talking about the importance of the exercise, we can uh, walk around the block and get the most more out of that, right? Uh, so I think we have a, a role here to play on, on people's physical health. I'm so glad you said that because that's what I was thinking too. And I've actually consulted with some programs that did that. They intentionally met with their clients outside, walked around intentionally. I mean, thinking through one of the big takeaways for me always is thinking through how we deliver services. We tend to think a lot about what we're delivering, but some of the exceptional programs is really thought through how we deliver those services and how are we continuing to kind of walk our talk, which is what Bill was saying about getting people to, to move and exercise. That's great, great discussion. All right, let's keep uh, going with the questions. Let's talk a little bit about client stories. Uh, you know, they're really powerful in describing the impact um, that, that housing as an intervention has. And people, sometimes I'm always asking people, tell me a story or kind of share a story so people can get how this um, really shows up in people's lives. So Cindy, let's start with you. Uh, you have a thousand stories, I'm sure, because we've been doing this for so long. Kind of give something that can give people an analogy or a visual in their head around how housing as an intervention really has an impact on somebody's life. Well, yes, and when I thought about that, I, I couldn't single it down to just one individual because every person, as Bill said, if they're experiencing homelessness, the solution is housing. So housing has made a significant impact and difference in every single person whose lives whoever receives housing. So then it turns into how can we figure out how to house every single person experiencing homelessness. And when Darla and I were a team together with James and um, all the rest of our service providers, we, we had a motto of being endlessly creative. Every day was a new day, was our saying, mm -hmm. which gave the client and us an opportunity to be creative today to, to problem solve the problem today. So in a, we really found, and um, I find this to be true at the Venice Center currently now, is that if a person is experiencing a housing challenge, if we respond as the helpers, what do you think would help? Ask, first of all, ask the resident. What do you think would help? What do you think would make a difference? And then be endlessly creative towards solutions. So solutions could be, for some people, we noticed that when we were serving individuals that had a lot of obvious and visual mental health symptoms, maybe some gesticulating, talking to themselves, just behaviors that would maybe cause alarm to people who observed them. We originally thought, oh, let's put this person in um, a housing environment where they're a little bit more isolated, there won't be a lot of eyes on this individual, and they'll be more comfortable. And what to our astonishment we found out was that individual was repeatedly returning to the hospital because he was so incredibly isolated. Here we thought we were being so smart and giving him the correct housing solution. And then we witnessed him constantly in the hospital. We moved him to a congregate housing setting where, yeah, there was tons of other people around him, but nobody really cared about any of those visual observances of his behavior. He stayed out of the hospital. And we were like, oh, check it out. We did the wrong thing there. But in the end, we had a housing solution because we were willing to be creative. And just lots of situations like that yeah, where we put other good. people in congregate and what they really needed was a little bit more of an isolated situation. So um, my takeaway for you guys is just be creative. Just constantly ask yourself, what haven't we tried? And then try it. Fail forward. I love that attitude. What do you want to add to it? Um, I would just more of the same, um, that there is no one answer, that each person is unique and their solution is going to be unique as to what they want and including them in that is so very important because again what works for one person may not work for another person there was somebody that we worked with that um had a fear of the bathroom of the toilet and so 
um, we came up with some super creative ideas around that that um, prevented him from getting evicted and you know he was still able to go to the bathroom so um, I think that just being willing that nothing is off the table yeah. is like the most important lesson I think that I've learned. Well, that, that good answer. Bill, what about you? Yeah, when I think about permanent supportive housing, I think about one uh, client I worked with in particular, and I'm not going to share too many details about him, but he had uh, significant chronic illnesses uh, related to uh, alcohol and, 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 and drug use and uh, spent uh, at least weekly time in emergency room for intoxication, uh, inpatient psych units, and he'd been through 28-day programs, 90-day programs, uh, transitional uh, uh, shelters, etc. And uh, when we connected him with, with housing, when he found a, a stable housing that was his own, his own bathroom and, and, and uh, a permanent solution, uh, he stopped using drugs and alcohol. He, he, he met a girl and got a girlfriend and he started doing some, uh, some, some temporary work or some peace work. And, uh, and I don't think uh, treatment could have done that. I think it was the housing that did that. And, uh, I've seen that over and over again, how house and decreases substance use. Yeah, that's been my experience too. And I know, you know, the research shows that it's different when you see it and, you know, it doesn't like stop the day they get housed necessarily, but it really does provide people a different mindset to be able to face the other challenges in their, in their life. Um, and I have a thousand stories too, but as you guys were talking, I was thinking the words that I really want to resonate in here is, when we talked, and we talked in the first session, Bill, when you were here about belongingness and housing being about belongingness and that framework we have to have that's not just about shelter, it's really about creating a place for people to belong. I reiterate that here. You know, looking at, especially if they come from these populations, the sense of purpose and finding something to do that's not take your meds and I'm gonna ask you 20 questions about your use, but it's changing the light bulbs or clean, you know, working on a community garden or beautification in the neighborhood or how are you contributing back to the greater good? I have found some amazing, I've seen clients do recycling, I've seen clients really find their purpose um, when they get housing and then they start to establish this sense of belongingness. And I don't think, my experience has been, I don't know about you guys, but my experience has been we don't always focus on that in the program design piece, which is why I think it's important to include our clients in the program design piece whenever possible. I see comments also in the chat group about location, 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 very important um, when we do program design. It's also important for us as social service providers to think beyond, again, treatment perspectives and, you know, how are we connecting them to natural community resources that are getting, like churches, for example, that help them get basic necessities met, and particularly if they're elderly or et cetera. So I wanted to just call uh, and do some recognition to that. So Bill, did you want to say something? I see you shaking your head. Yeah, I'm, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about a, a research article uh, by uh, Alvison, Alvison and Drake. It was a ethnographic study that followed, I think, 19 individuals with uh, with uh, co-occurring health and substance use disorders. And they uh, looked at uh, and tracked what sort of contributes to, uh, to uh, sobriety and, and, uh, and reduce in, uh, in, in alcohol and drug use. And the fourth thing they discovered were uh, having a decent place to live, as they define it, have a meaningful thing, meaningful activity to do, something to, to occupy, whether it's work or a hobby, have a meaningful contact with a uh, um, the mental health provider 
and have contact with a family member or a friend at a social outlet outside of that. Those were the four things that popped up in that study, and, and those are the things that sort of resonates with me. Uh, as yeah, well, right? yeah. I, I think when I first met you, is that the study you sent me? That was, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's such a good basic. I mean, this was done a long while ago, so we've known this for a long time. Maybe we could get that link and put it in the chat and in the questions afterwards. I think that's an easy read for people to understand the power of housing, particularly with this population. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about, you know, about five minutes before I want to take some questions from the chat room. So let's go around. I just have two questions left. One is, and Bill, I'll actually start with you on community partners. Let's talk a little bit about, I always want people to leave thinking about what their next action step is. So if they wanted to take some action, who would be people that you'd recommend um, to partner with to start figuring out what their role in housing could be or how they could help the populations we're talking about today? Yeah, I think uh, I'd like to get back to that concept of a mental health team, that uh, we need to expand that to include uh, friends and family, as, as, uh, as we talked about, but also to include the landlord, maybe, yep. on that team somehow to uh, uh, identify social outlets in the community uh, to, um, um, yeah, to break that isolation that, that we talked about earlier. Uh, and also uh, uh, include primary care on that yeah. piece, right? As we talked about physical health, it's important to, uh, uh, to find a primary care physician that uh, is sensitive to these issues as well. Good. Cindy? Well, the word partner always makes me think of, since we're talking about housing, is what Bill just said, which is the landlord. And that was actually always my favorite part of the housing program was identifying landlords in the community who wanted to partner with what we were doing, which was housing people, which is, as a landlord, what they've raised their hand to do. The part that I learned over time, and I think it warrants mentioning, is that the landlords are not the social workers we are. The landlords are business individuals. And so if we can find a landlord who is mission-driven and wants to help give a, a, a person experiencing homelessness a second chance, great. But their unit is their asset, and they're not trying to lose money on it, they're not trying to not get rent, they're not trying to have damages. They're running a business. So as long as as the social workers, we remember that and we partner with the right landlords and then we think through how we can incentivize the landlords to want to work with us and ensure that their business is not taking a financial hit. You will have, you will have a partner forever. And I found that when I took care of my landlords, they took care of us, which meant that if a resident wasn't doing well, they didn't just go to court and slap an eviction on them. They called me. They said, Cindy, we're having some challenges. I'm going to give you a chance to work with this person or else behavior change. And if not, hey, just go ahead and move your person. I'm not going to evict them. I'm not going to charge you with court costs. And in turn, they would usually say to me, who else do you have? They wouldn't say, stop calling me. So it was an amazing win-win if, if I made sure they weren't losing money, that their asset was protected, and that if they rang my phone, I responded, they continued to partner with me. And um, the landlord part can, can be really fun. I'm so glad you said that. that. So I could echo that all day long. We talked about it in another session, actually. Um, and I just want to emphasize that we talk about social services accepting the clients for where they're at. I also often consult with people that are building bridges with landlords to say, you need to accept that this is a business venture and they're not there for a social service. And if we can start talking their language, usually you can find that overlap because a lot of landlords actually do want you to stay and they grow accustomed to our clients, in my experience. But we have to start by learning their language. So I'm so glad you said that. Darla, did you want to add something? Um. I think the original question was um, community partners. What, oh, community partners. Yes. Talking about landlords. Then landlords. Yes. Everything that Cindy said, very important. And to find those landlords that are mission driven and 
fit their niche. You know, like we have one landlord that really likes people in recovery from substance use disorder. So we make sure that the people that we place in his units are in recovery from substance use disorder. And then we have other sets of landlords that, you know, are willing to take on different scenarios and situations. So I think as much as possible, even with a a small housing program, to diversify is hugely important. I agree. So the, what I always add to this, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast too, but um, I think one of the most undertapped partners that we look at are social businesses. And really, so for example, when you talk about homelessness, there is some type of connection between the art community and homelessness. And some of the best projects I've seen have wrapped art into housing and they've, we've had this wonderful mix of support um, outside of the social service arena. So I always tell people to think about, look at your community and start thinking about who is socially conscious in your community. That is an uprise in business. There are more businesses becoming more socially conscious because it's a market advantage. <clears throat> so I think that we can look at not only landlords, and I'd also mentioned housing authority and um, who are your local resource people that can have long-term subsidies as well. Um, but look at those socially conscious businesses too, because I have seen some of the most creative, when Cindy was talking about being creative every day, some of that is also in the design of who your partners are gonna be to to serve your community. So I wanted to throw that one in there. Um, let me ask this last question, which I always, this is my favorite question of the whole time, um, which Bill got asked this before too, but Darla, I'm gonna start with you and ask what advice would you give your younger self now that you know what you know? What advice do you wanna leave people with? Two things. One, read the SAMHSA toolkit before you start. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's hugely Good helpful. Point. And um, two, that I don't have to be an expert on anything because, again, partnering with the client um, is the most important thing. And if I don't have an idea or solution to reach out not only to the people maybe that I work with, but the larger community as a whole. That's good. Cindy? Well, now that I'm over 50, uh, (laughs) I do feel like the the biggest... um, benefit that I give myself these days is to just breathe and stop and if I'm experiencing a problem related to someone's housing is that I don't, what Darla just said, I don't have to have the answer right this second and have an opportunity to stop and really let the solution rise up and I can promise you that in every case it does if you're really just being patient, being open and and breathing, solutions come where you least expect it and if you trust in that, they'll be there for you. Good. Bill? Yeah, I I think I would tell myself, uh, believe in the people that you work with, that they, that they can work, they can live independent, and uh, um, not be so concerned about illness and substance use and, and all these other barriers that might be to be successful there. I've found so many times that people have surprised me and, uh, and sort of shamed me for having those thoughts. So. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd piggyback on that because I find myself saying a lot, you know, social service programs are only as good as the people you hire um, and spending time looking for people that connect easily with people, particularly people that have had lots of trauma and may upon first appearance be difficult to look like they're difficult to work with. Those are the people that end up being some of your best employees, people with lived experience. We had a discussion uh, previous to this, people with lived experience that have been in recovery. There are just some things they can do that you cannot um, connect if you haven't had that experience. Just like with cancer, HIV, AIDS, 
and that's become more and more part of a business model. And so I'm always looking for um, that advantage. And I think the thing I echo here that I echoed in the first session was understanding the business side of housing. That there is a business side. If I had told my younger self that earlier, the cost of homelessness and the cost of doing nothing is way more expensive than actually trying to solve the problem. That tends to shift people's perspective and get them to be a little less judgmental um, early on with, with the population we're, we're trying to serve. So I want to reiterate that here too. So, so Bill, did you want to say anything else? Were you just shaking your head and agreeing with me? I was just agreeing with you. Okay. I like that. He likes that. I do like that. Um, although I'm welcome to, to anything outside of there. Okay, so let's go ahead and Bree, are we ready to take a couple more? I've just been glancing at the, the questions there. Do you want to go ahead and start by calling out a question or two before we wrap up? Sure. Um, let's see. I think Maria Villa had a question. Maria, would you like to unmute and ask your question? For the sake of time, I'll go ahead and ask it. Um, she asked, how can case managers be effective when there are limited resources for mental health partners? How can case managers help participants without having this important component? Um, I think that what's important to know is if, because having been a case manager, moving from a crisis intervention kind of philosophy of working to a prevention is hugely important. So um, as a case manager, one of the things that I quickly learned is to go into my client's apartments every time I met with them, instead of having them meet me downstairs and just jump in my car for me to go into their apartment so that I could put my own eyes on to see if there was problems within the apartment that might trigger an eviction to be proactive with, you know, on the day that the client gets the check, you know, did you pay your rent? Is there anything that I can do to help you do that? Those types of things I think are hugely important. Good. Any other comments on that one, case managers? I just want to say, I think there's an issue here of self-care. I think uh, there's a, the danger here to, uh, to, uh, to look at all the limitations and, and be frustrated with the work that we have. And uh, if we take care of ourselves, we're able to reach people uh, in different ways, uh, to project some, some calm and, and, and uh, well-being, I think it's important. I, I think I, one of the things I want to add to that is, um, which we've had conversation about, is looking at your onboarding process for your case managers. And are you teaching people, like do they know the lease regulations in their state? And are you teaching people three questions they should be asking on housing stability? If, you know, have people paid rent, have they paid utilities? Um, do they have negotiation skill? I think we don't practice it. I think that's something you learn over time and you become more seasoned with, but you can start that earlier. And case managers, effective case managers that know how to negotiate. And prevention is always cheaper than a cure. So if you can prevent someone from getting evicted, that's real money. That's money that a landlord or a housing authority is paying out. And there's a, there's a financial return to that investment. It's good for the client and good for the community. So really teaching some different skills. Cindy, you want to say something? Well, the, the answer that I would jump in with is that it's important for our, our clients that are experiencing mental health symptoms that have, to have access to mental health care. However, that being said, all of our residents, when Darla and I were working together, who experienced significant symptoms, all had access to psychiatry and medications, and that did not prevent us from having day in and day out really significant housing challenges. So I'm not negating the importance of access to um, 
the structure of mental health care, but when it comes down to it, even individuals who are taking medications on a daily basis might still sell the stove out of the unit, might still pull the carpet up, might still pull the thermostat off the wall, might still move the refrigerator into the hallway. These are multiple clients, not the same. <laughs> um, and, and not pay their rent because they believe the Indian tribe they belong to is paying it for them. So we're still going to have lots of very real housing challenges. And that's going to be really creative work with clients. You're going to have to get at those solutions because medication doesn't usually get it. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Some people it really does help become a little more logical, but some people obviously not. Okay, another question. All right, um, Bob had a question. He asked, how does changing political climate, changing laws and government funding sources affect the economic longevity of your housing projects? We've had quite a few places in Omaha closed down over the years because, uh, for example, Catholic Charities had a huge long-term uh, wing uh, in uh, Campus for Hope which was for severe and persistent mental illness and substance use disorders. Um, closed down recently, got bought by another place. Uh, so we have that, that kind of thing that happens on a regular basis. You guys have some plans or some knowledge that we don't necessarily have or some ideas how to make projects last for 20 or 30 years instead of just two or three years? That's a great question. Anybody want to take a stab at it before I say something? Bill? No, I think that's yours. Oh, <laughs> good. Good way to default. Now, let, so, me just, uh, let me just pop Truman here for a second. Uh, Truman has built their uh, permanent supportive housing program off the ground, Department of Psychiatry, which is sort of unique, uh, that you have a, an incredible ability to have access to, to psychiatry and, and uh, behavioral health care that way. It is a really unique program in, in my mind. Well, thank you for that. And uh, so let me just give it, this is my two cents on that. That's such a great question because the truth is, um, you know, financial resources are limited like anything else. The trend, well, I'll tell you, I just came back, I mentioned from Colorado Springs, and one of the big takeaways for me is um, really the trend in social impact businesses and starting to get out of the thinking that government has the answer to everything and that these funding sources we continue to kind of maximize as best we can are the 20 to 30 to 40 year answer for us. They're not. So the population is growing, the demand's growing, we have more and more people um, that are having challenges out there. Um, and they could give you a whole host of reasons why I think that is, but the bottom line is, is we, we're trying to put ourselves out of business ourselves. And really, the, if you look at progressive communities that are really trying things differently with the populations we're talking about today, they're really partnering with social impact businesses. And they're baking it into their DNA and they're starting to say, we need a long-term underwriter. We need somebody that cares about veterans. It doesn't want to just write us a check every year, but really wants to help them find purpose and give them jobs as we house them and do these. So it's a different way of thinking for us in the program design place. And the best takeaway that I could give you, Bob, is to think about it as a mini social business and, and to start getting educated as a business and not a social service. And that will open up new funding sources is what I've seen and funding sources we can experiment with that frankly have less restrictions. I think some of the problems we always run into with the things you mentioned is there's a lot of strings that come with the funding sources that we have. And best practice doesn't always keep up. By the time you get the money, there's something new out now or some new technology or something that happens. And sometimes you're stuck to what you applied for and then you have to try to adapt it in. So you're always behind the gun sometimes. So what I'm seeing is if you can get into a, a pot of money or with partners that are more flexible and can quickly get that out, 
the stability looks different. The business plan looks different. So it's not by any means mainstream, but it is a discussion that is happening on the East and West Coast um, that here in the Midwest, I think we could benefit from. We could start having these discussions about who are the people in the Midwest that cares about veterans, that cares about people that are homelessness, that have homelessness, that actually have resources that they'd like to dedicate to this, if we could show them a return on that investment. So that's a great question. It's not easy. It's very layered with problems, but it's something for us to think differently on. So James, I would add something to that. I think about the people who already have housing. So I totally understand what you're talking about changing climates. St. Michael's Veterans Center was built with the Missouri Low Income Housing Tax Credit. Uh, two years ago, our governor eliminated that. So that's a tool that we're, we're working very hard to bring back. But I think changing political uh, environments and funding streams are always going to change. That's always been the truth for social services. So not to negate anything that you're saying, but I do think that there are housing partners out there like the Housing Authority. We need to identify people that are already stakeholders who are already providing that service and find out where they're not being successful and figure out how we can bring what we're doing to increase success. So a partnership that we had in Kansas City, Kansas, is the housing authority was telling us that they were turning units over much too quickly. They housed somebody, they didn't sustain it, they were out of the unit you know, before a couple months. And so, yeah, they were housing people, but not successfully. They came to us and said, hey, you guys are the service providers. How about if we partner with you and do what we're doing, but do it more successfully? And I think that we can identify landlords who have too much turnover or too high vacancy rates. There are housing authorities that have public housing units that are turning over too often that might possibly give you an I was offered an entire floor to run a veteran supported housing program. They just wanted us to do something. So I think it's identifying those partners that are out there. It's not going to be easy. We had churches that were calling us saying, I have a unit. What do you guys want to do with it? Um, now, not every unit that's offered to you do you actually want. So I'm all out there chuckling. But we also just have to continue to be creative and identify who the stakeholders are. I know all over the country housing partners are talking with health insurance providers because individuals that aren't housed are running their, their, their costs up. And so we have to constantly be figuring out who, who are our clients costing money and how can we partner with them to have a much more successful outcome for everybody. And, and those ideas are out there. Yeah, that's a great take. I have a quick uh, yes or no question. So with that said, that's an intelligent enough answer. I have to ask this. Have any of you worked with the Bill Gates Foundation or Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, or you know, the no. few companies that actually have assets that are socially conscious that want to help with some of these things? That's a great question. Actually, that's when I came back from talking. So I haven't done a project necessarily with them, but we've studied the projects, for example, that the Bill Gates Foundation and Amazon has been looking at. Um, and again, I think there's areas to lead here. So I love where you're thinking, and that's why I want to plant the seed whenever I talk about it. This is an untapped business venture that is just now starting to take purpose, and it's being driven by millennials. It's being driven by the purchase power of people that are saying, I want to invest and buy a cup of coffee, <coughs> excuse me, from somebody that's housing homeless people over the cup of coffee that I'd buy over here, and I'd pay a little more for it. So there is those people out there. I would tell you to think even less big, and who are the socially conscious partners that are in your community, because there's more than people realize. So um great question i'm glad you asked it okay let's it's five we have five more minutes so what i'm going to do uh let's take one more quick question Bray, and then we'll start to wrap up can i just add that uh sure. comment here that i think uh we don't need to look at permanent supportive housing as permanent right there's a lot of people that get better and we can help people along that path of of finding employment and getting uh to become independent and not rely on that subsidy for housing and so we can talk about not just how to expand the 
the number of units and, and, and develop new housing, but also how to uh, uh, sort of opening the back door of people moving, moving out of the system. So yeah, I'd echo that too. I mean, I think that yeah, I could have a whole other conversation, conversation about the investment. In, yeah, yeah. in you know, interim short-term and transitional housing because we think we're doing something good. Look at the research beforehand. Not that it's not needed for special populations, but the permanency of housing is really important when you design things too. Okay, so let's go ahead. I think Bree, you had something you needed to say um, at yes. the end of this as wrap up. I will be sending up a follow-up email in the next week or so uh, with an evaluation that's required by our funder, SAMHSA. Um, so if you could please take the time to fill that out, we'd love to hear from you and love your feedback. And also with that email, I will send the FAQs from session one and two and hopefully three if they're ready. So. Thanks for joining us today. Well, we'll get to that. So really, we're starting to wrap up and wind down. And I want to take a minute to just thank all my guests for being able to have this conversation. This is why I didn't want it scripted, is I really love having this rich conversation for people to kind of shift your mindset. I see some great comments there. There's some people in Omaha, it looks like I'm going to be reaching out to here um, afterwards to talk to about them being mission-driven landlords. So I'm excited to do that. Um, our next session in this series is October 9th on alternative housing types. Um, and so I have um, some other people coming on and we're going to cover a wide variety of kind of housing stock and how to think differently about the type of intervention that we want to be able to provide. Is there any last minute things that, uh, Bill, I'll start with you, that you wanted to give people? i got two more minutes. So any last minute advice you want to offer? Uh, no, I think I'm running out. Um, <laughs> We've tapped everything from Bill. What about Cindy or Darla? No, it's just been a pleasure today to be able to speak with y'all. This has been great. And Nate, thanks for coming. Appreciate you being here. Appreciate your service. Thanks for letting me be here. Um, and again, look forward to seeing everybody hopefully on October 9th. Thank you for signing on to this. If we haven't got to your question, because there's looks like there's several there, we will go ahead and add that to the FAQ and go from there. Thanks, everybody.